All right, well, good morning. How is everyone? Good. It's good to see you. Glad that you've uh, chosen to worship with us today. Thanks to all of you that are joining us online. Really grateful also that you are here. And uh, we are going to be in a passage of scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 to 17, to start with this morning, but that's where we'll start, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. So if You've been around Bay Area a while, you might remember this, but back at Easter, uh, we asked questions. We said, hey, could you, for us, submit uh, your questions so that we could create a sermon series later in the fall uh, called You Asked For It? And you did. You submitted like 150-ish questions. And what I've done is like taken the, the three that I, I seem to be the most repeated in different ways but also uh, most practical for us. I weeded out some of them, like, like there was one, does Adam and Eve have a belly button? Did they have that? I didn't want to spend 35 minutes on that, um, but my, I think no, that's what I think, but it's up to you, you decide, I don't know. Uh, but today, what we are going to do is look at a question that is really, really important to us today. And you asked it, and so I'm going to try to answer it. And the question is, is the scripture reliable in the mode that we hold it in today? In other words, how do I know that what I'm reading here is actually what God said, and, how, and can I trust it? Can I trust it? So anybody ever play that telephone game when you were a kid or maybe... Like when I was in youth ministry and church growing up, that was, that was Gorilla Man Gun and Telephone. Like why? But this game was like if I started over here and I told Dale a secret and then he told Laura and they passed it down and so on and so forth. By the time we got to the back of the room, whatever I said to Dale would be so messed up that we would laugh so hard because it would be nonsensical and crazy because what, what was said from the source was jacked up all along the way, right? By people who were passing it down and down and down. Well, the Bible is actually, what we have in the Bible is actually a huge telephone game, believe it or not. It is the passing down of this message from one person to another, from generation to generation over a long period of time. And the miraculous thing is the message is unified over a long period of time. Um, the Bible is a miraculous book. It's different than every other book. Its authorship spans 1,500 years. So you're talking about writing in a 1,500-year increment, inspired by the Holy uh, Spirit, but, but written by shepherds, prophets, kings, fishermen, and rabbis who spoke different languages from different parts of the world. And the message is so unified because it all points to Jesus from, from Genesis to Revelation. It's an unbelievable book, but it's a great question. Can we, we rely on it? People uh, kind of fall in about three camps. One is like total despair. Like there is no way this book that we hold in English today represents what God said to the world, to, Kind of a despairing view, total despair. Another group of people that are way over here that are like, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it. And they don't know why, but they just say that. The Bible says it, so I believe it. Why do you believe what you believe? That's the question for you. The middle, the middle is what we're going to shoot for today, and that is an informed faith that says that it's probably true the Bible says it, so I believe it. But why do I believe it and know the answer to that particular 
uh, question. So what I want to do is start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 to 17. I'll get you to stand. And if you're our guest, uh, we say this phrase, the very words at the end of the main text reading, just to distinguish God's word from my own. <clears throat> Here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Give you seated. So what does the Bible say about itself? Well, we'll start here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul is telling Timothy, the younger pastor that's getting ready to share the gospel with all these people in Ephesus, the scripture that we have is breathed out by God. In other words, its source is not the hands of men, but it is inspired by God himself. And that's a major doctrine that we ascribe, ascribe to today is that the scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's different than every other, other book. It's, it's useful in practically, practical ways in our lives for correction, training, and righteousness that we can be equipped for good works. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is echoing like these words that we have from God. They came, their source is the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the writer of Hebrews was saying there's something about this book that pierces the heart of men and women, that when you read it or when you hear it proclaimed, it speaks to you, and it's actually the Holy Spirit speaking to you through these words. There's something different about this book. Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, the prophet Isaiah said, for as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven, let it happen again, Lord Jesus, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the prophet Isaiah is saying, this word comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's going to go out and it's going to do its work. It won't return void. In fact, it will reap a giant harvest in the, in the world. So, so there is something different about this book than every other book from the get-go. And the Bible's explanation of that is, it, it is its source is God himself. Uh, and it changes people. That's what the Bible says about it. The question is, and this is my second point, can we trust that God has spoken in our own language to reveal himself? Like, can we trust that what we have here, God has spoken in our own language to reveal himself? Now, I'm going to give you some sources, and I'll just say, like, if this is your first time here, normally I open a passage, I read it, I preach from the Bible, and we let the Bible speak to us. Today, we're doing some of that, but mostly we're going we're gonna to step back and talk a little bit about the Bible. And so you're going to feel like you're in seminary. How many of you never wanted to go to seminary in your life? 
for 30 minutes, you don't have to pay, for 30 minutes, uh, you, can, you, can, you can be in seminary. And the reason is, you ask this question, and there's really one solid way to answer it, but you have to dig a little bit deep. And then the question is, is the scripture reliable? Can I trust that what I have here in my hand is actually what God spoke? Now, I'm going to give you some sources because uh, it's important for, that you know where I'm getting information. So there's a book called The Doctrine of the Bible by David Dockery, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible by Benjamin Warfield, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics by Daniel Wallace, that's like Greek for dummies, Scribes and Their Remains by Jeremiah Johnson, Sermon Notes from Ben Stewart, Sermon Notes from Trent Henderson, who's over here at Heritage Park, and various uh, scholarly articles um, and research from my own teaching that I do in Qumran, Israel, uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So let me just wade into this and blow your mind pretty fast. So number one, do we have the original manuscripts of the Bible? The answer to the question is no. We do not have the original manuscripts of the Bible. So now with one question, some of you have moved from the Bible believes it to I said it to total despairing in one, one question, and you don't need to go there. You don't have to go there, but you got to hear me out. We do not have a manuscript, the original manuscript of the Bible. The Bible is 66 books made up over a period of time, again, by different authors, like I said. We do not have the original manuscripts. And so what we do have is copies, copies of the original manuscripts. And that's really important and what we're going to focus on uh, today. So here comes the seminary part. Let's start with the New Testament. So when we begin with the New Testament, I want to talk about something called textual criticism. It's the idea of looking at the text and critiquing it in a scholarly way to know, is there evidence to say that this is accurate, that this is reliable? And there are three, uh, three ways that textual critics look at ancient documents like this. The first one is uh, quantity of manuscripts. How many manuscripts do we have and how many variants are there among those manuscripts? Two, quality of manuscripts. How, how good are they? And what are the differences in, in the qualities? And third, orthodoxy. Uh, what what, does it, what do these manuscripts say that inform all of our, our beliefs that we stand on? So quantity, quality, and orthodoxy. Let me just talk about quantity of copies for just a moment. So um, in the Greek New Testament, there are 1,000, uh, sorry, 138,162 words. Um, how many scribal errors are there in the manuscripts of those 138,162 words? So scribes, to make a long story short, took copies and recopied them over and over and over again through the centuries. How many textual variants do we get in this telephone game of copying ancient manuscripts uh, until we get to uh, today? So there are uh, textual variants. There are 400,000 textual variants in the Greek New Testament, 400,000. So that's why brainiac people, when you say every word of the New Testament is exactly right, they're thinking to themselves, it can't be. This is how it's put together. For, and there are, if you look at it, 400,000 
variance. Now, again, some of you are moving from, the Bible says it, so I believe it. I'm totally despairing, and where do I go from here? You need to hang with me for just a minute. So yes, uh, there are 400,000, but the reason there are 400,000 variants is because we have so many manuscripts. If you just had one manuscript, there would be no variants. But because we have so many manuscripts, there are 400,000 variants. How many manuscripts do we have? Well, Greek New Testament manuscripts before the printing press. So you realize the printing press is like the iPhone of the day. And once that thing was rocking and rolling, things were printed like crazy. But before the printing press, we had 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Before the printing press, we had 10,000 Latin New Testament manuscripts. So uh, Jerome hid out in a cave in, outside of Bethlehem and, and transcribed, trans translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, and we had 10,000 copies of that before the printing press. Additionally, there were 10,000 copies uh, before the printing press in Coptic, Syriac, Georgian, Aramaic, and other uh, ancient languages, giving us a total of 25,000 manuscripts prior to the printing press. Now, I don't know what that sounds like to you, if that's a lot or a little, but just hold on. We'll compare in just a second. So this, the, the question to answer when you're talking about quantity of all these copies is like, um, is, is found in the word proximity. How close did these 25,000 manuscripts get to the original writings in, in date? So if it was written here, how, how far back did these manuscripts go? And of the 25,000 manuscripts that we have, the closest ones get within a decade or so of the writings, which is really, really close in antiquity. The church fathers who lived between 100 and 300 AD, the early church fathers, they quoted the Bible in their writings, the New Testament in their writings. Ignatius quotes Matthew in 127 AD. So that's like 60 or 70 years after the original manuscript is penned. You have uh, one of the early church fathers quoting Matthew in 127. The early church fathers quote the New Testament over a million times in that 200-year time frame. So what that tells us is that they had access to copies. They quote it accurately, even as we look at it in our, our text even today. And so they were utilizing these manuscripts uh, early, early on. Um, so 25,000, again, I don't know what it sounds like to you, but I, I want to compare that to some other ancient uh, writings from antiquity. So there are three Roman historians that changed the world and two Greek historians that changed the world, and none of their writings are questioned as reliable. Everybody would say, this writing is reliable. They give us everything we know about Roman history, everything we know about Greek history. If you liked the Percy Jackson series, uh, mythology, any of that stuff, you, these guys are your guys. Um, they, they're the ones that, that, that write all this. So to compare them, so the, the, the three Roman historians, first century AD Roman historians are Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius. Livy, we have 27 manuscripts of Livy, 27. That's less than 25,000. Tacitus, we have three. And Suetonius, we have three, also less than 25,000. 
The proximity for Tacitus and Suetonius is 800 years after they wrote it. So the, the newest, uh, oldest manuscript that they have is 800 years after those guys wrote it. Yet nobody's going. Suetonius was a liar. Livy was a liar. Tacitus is a liar. It's not reliable. Because they have 27 manuscripts. Three manuscripts are, are three or three manuscripts. In the fifth century, the, the Greek historians, that the two most notable Thucydides and Herodotus, Thucydides, they, he writes in the fifth century BC, so 500 years before Christ, and we have slivers of parchment from Thucydides from the first century. So that's a five or 600 year gap, right? In proximity. Herodotus, we have slivers about a 300 year gap. Right? So when we're talking about quantity altogether, these altogether, these five historians, uh, altogether, we have less than 400, even mo- in the most modern uh, forms, even less than, altogether less than 400. Uh, I just want to show you a diagram so you can see. Sometimes visual is helpful. So if you look at 5,280 feet, that's how high we can stack. 25,000 New Testament manuscripts. And if you look at four feet over there, the average Greek writer, that's how far, how high we can stack the manuscripts that we have for, uh, for Livy and Suetonius and Tacitus and Thucydides and Herodotus. But nobody questions those guys. Nobody, Right? So that's quantity. Let's look at quality of copies. So uh, these guys that look at this stuff, they're like the, how many of you are rocket scientists in the room? Anyone? Are they on the first hour? <laughs> they get up early. There's one. He's just not raising his hand. Um, <clears throat> anyway, we, the rest of us, we think you're a little nerdy. I don't know if you know that. But we're like, wow, rocket science. It's amazing on one hand. On the other hand, I can't even think like that. Like the, the textual critics of the Bible, they're scholars that focus in this particular area. They are the rocket scientists of uh, antiquity when it comes to these ancient documents. And they look at quality of copies and they ask themselves the question, like, what kind of textual variants are there in these copies? So I told you there are 400,000 variants in the Greek New Testament. They categorize these things as either meaningful or viable or some combination of the two. Meaningful means does this variant change the impact or the meaning of the word? And viable means is this potentially uh, a representative of the original wording or not? And so here's what we find with the Greek New Testament. 70% of the 400,000 variants, 70% are spelling differences. Do you imagine that they made a spelling mistake? Like if we start over here and like, you know, first century Qumran and we're, we're, we're scribing Genesis and then it's passed down and passed down and they, they rewrite it and rewrite it. Do you think there are any spelling mistakes in the Hebrew or the, the Greek? Yes. In the Greek New Testament, there are, set, there are uh, 70% of that 400,000 is uh, spelling. Like in Greek, uh, you can, you can uh, spell John with one N or two, so and people do, and so it's it's one of the ver- it's it's 
one of, of, of the, those kinds of variants. It's like in English, we, we spell the word theater, T-H-E-A-T-E-R now, but if we were, you know, from Great Britain a hundred years ago, and maybe even today, I don't know, they spell it T-H-E-A-T-R-E, right? So same word, spelled differently, that goes in the variant category, 70% of those variant of those 400,000 variables are uh, of variants are spelling differences. The second category are variations that can't be easily translated into English. Um, so almost like 28%, a little bit more than 28% are variations that can't be translated into English. Uh, those of you that are Spanish speakers that read our, our worship. Uh, when we translate into Spanish, you realize, like, some of that doesn't translate exactly right. Anybody ever felt like that? Like, a little twitchy? Like, what's Pastor Ryan doing? But, you know, it's mostly right. The words are right. But sometimes it doesn't translate just exactly into English. The same thing is also true in, uh, in Greek, and we get a lot of examples of those. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 is one of those examples. Um, the, we, we most often translated, we became gentle among you. Sometimes translated, we became little children among you. In the Greek, it's agonethemen nepioi or agonethemen epioi or agonethemen hippioi. So it all kind of sounds kind of the same, right? In the 14th century, there was a manuscript that was translated agonethemen hippioi. The original is agonethemen nepioi. So some scribe along the way went from agonethemen nepioi to agonethemen epioi to agonethemen hippioi. The first two, they're okay. The last guy should have been fired because <laughs> hippioi means horse. So it's like we became gentle among you. We became like little children among you. We became horses among you. That's not right, right? And so scholars know, okay, that's a meaningful variant we didn't become horses among you, but that's not viable. We have to throw that one out and go back to different manuscripts. We know that's not, not viable. So about 28% of these, or a little bit more of these, uh, these variants are those that they don't translate well, or it's just a, a, a letter that got interchanged and, and they caught it. Um, those are meaningful, but not viable. Um, there are meaningful and viable Variants, right? But it's less than 1%. Um, Revelation 13, 18. This is going to mess with, with some of you who love this number so, so very much. Uh, but Revelation 13, 18 says the number of the beast is 666, right? But if you look, like even in my footnote in the ESV here, it says some manuscripts say 616. Uh, and it's true. If you look back at the manuscripts, what you'll find is that it's listed as 666, but it's also listed as 616. And so that is a meaningful and viable. It changes the number. It's meaningful and viable. But we have no creed based on the number of the beast. Like we have no theology, no doctrine, no way of living according to the scriptures that Jesus has given us. We, we don't change how we walk with Jesus or what we understand about him based on was that number 666 or 616. So it's meaningful but not viable. But that brings us to the third component, which is orthodoxy. What theological beliefs depend on the textually suspect passages 
and that is zero. The only people that are mad about 666 or 616 are the ones that, you know, in their earlier life when they were Satanists and they tattooed 666 (laughs) on their arm and they find out it could have been 616. It might be messed up. But the Christians, we don't care uh, so much, right? Because it doesn't change who Jesus is. Was he resurrected? How do we find salvation? Any of those, uh, those big uh, issues. So it's meaningful and viable, but does it matter? Not so much. Okay, so that's the New Testament. 25,000 manuscripts compared to 400 for the, the next best guys, right? 25,000. That is incredible, unbelievable that the word of God in the New Testament has been, has been uh, pre- preserved in such a way that now you hold it in your hand and you read it. Is the, is the New Testament reliable? Yes. All the evidence would say that the New Testament is reliable. Uh, can you trust what it has to say? Yes. Yes, you can. But what about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament uh, originally, well, most recently, Prior to 1940s, the 1940s, most recently, we had uh, only the Masoretic text to, to build the Old Testament uh, from in our English language, and that came from A.D. 900, right? It was the oldest copies of the Old Testament we had. In 1946, 47, there was a Bedouin shepherd kid around Qumran. He was picking up rocks throwing them in caves. He throws this rock in a cave. He hears this shatter of what sounds like pottery. To make a long story short, they go up there. They find in that cave the entire scroll of Isaiah. So obviously, there's a long story to it, but I'm going to make it very, very short. They take it. It ends up at John Hopkins University, and a scholar named William Foxwell Albright Uh, studies this intensely with his team to discover the age and understand from whence this scroll came. And his quote is, at the end of his, uh, in his conclusions, my heartiest congrats to the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. The date is not less than the ascension of Herod the Great. I should prefer 100 BC, making the find of that scroll 1,000 years older than the Masoretic text that we were building all of our understanding of the, the Old Testament on. So now, if, if, if the Masoretic text is here in 900 AD and the birth of Jesus is like here, the Dead Sea Scrolls are over here, you know, a thousand year gap. And so then they, they go back and they find more. They find Deuteronomy, they find Psalms, they find Isaiah in their entirety, just anecdotally, but it's cool. Guess what, what books of the Bible Jesus quotes more often than not in the Gospels? Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms. It's his go-to. Everything. Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms. They find Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms. They find more than that. They find uh, pieces and parts of all the Old Testament, but those three scrolls, scrolls in their entirety. And so they get this idea because this is what textual critics do. Well, let's compare Isaiah from, from the Dead Sea Scrolls to Isaiah of the Masoretic text, and let's figure out like how close they are. Is it the same? And so here's what they find. Specifically, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 53 on this. Let me just show you a picture of uh, this Isaiah scroll, just so you know I'm not lying. Um, 
this is, as they unroll the scroll, this is, this is what it looks like. Um, they, they've put lots of, of fragments back together at this point, but it's readable. And it's readable because of where it was in geography, the climate of Qumran and all, all of that. It's amazing what it was put in. So we have this thing. And so they go and they, they study. And what they find, they take Isaiah 53 and they compare the two from a thousand years apart. And what they find is that the text is extremely close. The Dead Sea Scroll text is extremely, extremely close to the Masoretic text. There are 17 letter differences in Isaiah 53. 17 letter differences. 10 are differences in spelling, like we talked about. Four are minor differences, like conjunctions. And three are letters for the word light interchange. So out of 166 words in the chapter 53 of Isaiah, this one word light is the one in question, and it does not change the meaning. What that shows us is over a thousand years, the telephone game worked perfectly. You can't deny it. It's evidential. It's, it's evidence. It's, it's, it's hard to deny. Now, people have tried. You can definitely go find books that try to say that the, the scripture is not true. There was a seminar, a group of, of, of scholars called uh, the Jesus Seminar, maybe, maybe 20 years ago, that got together and they, they tried to, to figure out how they could prove that the, the Bible wasn't true. Many of the people bought into it, but then when Ehrman, one of the, the scholars, began to look at these manuscript evidence, he footnoted his book that he made a lot of money on, saying the Bible wasn't true. In the most recent copies, he footnoted it to say, oh, these manuscripts show that it kind of is. But it's in a footnote, very back. It's amazing. The Bible you have in your hand is the Bible of antiquity and the very words of God. It's miraculous. There's nothing else like it. No other book. I did not even, I just showed you manuscript evidence. I did not even discuss historical evidence, geographic evidence, and archaeological evidence, and extra biblical source evidence. I didn't even go there because we don't have time. But just the manuscript is enough. Just the manuscript evidence. If you come to Israel, I'll show you the archaeological evidence. Come to Turkey, we'll show you the archaeological evidence, the geographic evidence, the historical evidence. It's all there. The question is, why is the Bible preserved in such a supernatural way? Why did that happen? I want you to know that it's not so you could walk away today thinking the Bible is an amazing book. It's so that you would know the author. He so wants you to know him. He has preserved his word. He's the source, and he has preserved his word over time in multiple languages over the course of time, and now it's viral. Technology is bad in some ways, not for the Bible, though. Because you can put the Bible in Iran, Iraq, China. You can get it anywhere with your phone. <laughs> I have 
thoughts. I mean, the whole world is getting ready to know because they have access. They have access. And it really is the word of God. It really does change people. When they read it, it really does change people. Go with me to Isaiah 53, and we'll, we'll close like this. Isaiah 53, 1 to 6. Isaiah, that scroll that they found in, in the dead, at the Dead Sea Scroll find in Qumran. Isaiah 53, that they studied and that I just shared with you. Listen to what it says. This was, this was proclaimed 700 plus years before the birth of Jesus. Listen to what it says. He who has believed what, what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yes, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the gospel in the book of Isaiah proclaimed 700 years before Jesus was born and preserved so that everybody could hear that this was on the heart of God from the beginning. Who was smitten? Who was wounded for our transgressions? Who was crushed for our iniquities? That was Jesus outside Jerusalem in the first century. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. People mocked him in that moment. They tore, if you continue to read this, you see exactly what happened. He was like a a lamb, verse seven, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shears. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. This is Jesus. Isaiah prophesied it to the Hebrew people. They wrote it down, and they copied it, and they copied it, and they copied it, and it's good, good, good that there was an Essene community of Hebrew people that wanted to get out of Jerusalem, like out of the rat race, get away from all that craziness and go be holy out in the desert. And so they did mikvah a lot, like ritual washing, and they copied scrolls. And with Isaiah, when the scroll wore out, they rolled it up. They put, them in a, put it in a geniza, and they took it up into the mountain and put it in a cave where it would be perfectly preserved Till one day, this Bedouin kid throws a rock in that cave. About 2,000 years later, 
and finds it. This is the word of God, people. Perfectly preserved. Is it reliable? Yes. Have you been to seminary? A little bit. And I apologize. It's a little lecture-ish. But man, informing of your faith. If you were despairing, I hope you've moved to informed faith. I hope that you, those of you that thought, like, I can't go all the way with Jesus, I can't go all the way with God because I don't know if I can trust him because I have big skeptical questions about the text, I hope that you've moved. I hope for those of you who are like, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it, and mostly in the King James Version, <laughs> you've moved this way to say, I understand why I believe it. Not only is there historical, geographical, prophetic, archaeological evidence, but the manuscript evidence is mind-blowing, and there is nothing else like it in the history of the world. Nothing. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and just ask the Lord to speak to you in these moments? Father, thank you. Thank you for preserving your word and giving it to us. Thank you for inspiring people over 1,500 years to write these things down. And thank you for raising up faithful people whose names we will never know who made meticulous copies. Thank you for being so sovereign that in 1947, you caused a little Bedouin kid to throw a rock in a cave. Thank you for the church fathers that quote Matthew and let us know a hundred years after Matthew or less, after Matthew wrote that gospel, that they were quoting it because they had read it and seen it. Thank you for all the copies that we have, all the scholars that have worked tirelessly to, to put these things together. Mostly, God, we thank you for your son, Jesus all the Bible, all of that work, all of it points to him. Jesus, thank you for loving us and giving yourself for us, for dying on a cross to save us from our sin. Thank you that when you ascended to heaven, you, you, you left, you gave to us the Holy Spirit to infill in, in us and empower us that we might walk with you and hear your voice. And thank you that today, when we open this Bible in our own language and ask you to speak to us, you do. Thank you for loving us like that, for wanting to be known by us and making a way for us to know you. And God, forgive us when we just put our Bibles on the shelf and never open it. We love you. Ignite a fire in our heart to hear what you have to say in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.